Hey everyone, welcome to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker. I am your host, and you are listening to the unedited version of an episode that we did with Steve Buzza talking about some research that he has done that is really fascinating looking at the golf swing and how we think. Really enjoyed this. We have an edited podcast which kind of focuses in on some of the main points that was posted previously. If you enjoy getting all the details and hearing everything involved in this, listen up because this is an awesome hour that we spent talking about this research. All right, I'm excited to sit down with Steve here today because uh, he's been doing some really interesting research. Uh, you've probably seen his his YouTube videos and, and know who he is, and I'm excited to sit down and learn in depth kind of what's been going on uh, behind the scenes with his his research project, what he's learned, uh, and all the details. So, Steve, how's it going? Yeah, I'm doing great, man, and uh, thanks for having me on here. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to having a little chat. I think a lot of people have seen that I do my my videos, my coaching videos. Um, I kept it on the download for quite a while that I was doing like my biomechanics uh, research. Quite hard doing it part time, so that w- it was always a bit of a tough one. But it's all done, and I've found some nice things. So uh, yeah, let's get in there. Yeah. Before we do, maybe like a thirty sixty second bio on kind of who you are, what you do. <laughs> Okay, so I'm uh, Steve Buzzer, originally from Exeter, uh, England. I did a sports science um, degree. Um, I graduated that one in 2009. So, love my golf, always loved playing. Kind of went off to do my degree. I I was actually interested in uh, sports psychology. So, was thinking that that would be the route I went down. But whenever, whenever I was out on the course, I've always been quite a technical player. And uh, then I was introduced to biomechanics when, when I was doing that undergrad degree. From there, I finished that one with a first-class honors degree and went on and did a research master's of kind of looking at driving performance. And whilst I was doing that, I've been doing the YouTube videos. Um, I worked for the University of Exeter. I had a performance team, which did really well. It was great teaching elite uh, amateurs, a few of them trying to go into the professional game. And then I work for David Ledbetter in Bangkok. And I'm currently sitting, looking over the water in Florida. So no longer in the southwest of England. I can tell you the weather is very nice here. <laughs> yes, that is for sure. Um, so let's start here. Give us like the high level pitch of what you've been looking at here. So from from a playing perspective, um, and I think people can relate to this, is when you're when you maybe on the range and practicing the driver, you kind of have like your stock driver, you're just trying to hit normal shots. And then when you actually go out on the course, you end up having to do different things because the whole layout changes. So my, my whole actual research project started probably my first or second year when I was doing my undergrad degree. And it came from quite simply when I try and hit it harder and I feel like I've hit that really big shot, has it actually gone further? Because when we're looking at a golf drive, we kind of get in a 2D perspective. So sometimes if we try harder and we perceive we swung it quicker, we just assume it's gone further. And it's, it's sometimes hard to actually judge whether it did or it didn't. So that was where the project actually first came about. Once I started kind of researching, I came across a a theory. It's, it's quite an old one from 1986, uh, a constraints-led approach. So it was done by a guy called uh, Newell. And he, rather than looking at sporting performance as just the technique, he felt that kind of what we do and what how we actually perform the movement is related to three things. So the actual task, the environment, and then the like the organism. So to break that down, so like the organism would be the golfer. So we we have different physical abilities. Uh, we have different psychological traits. The task in golf can change massively. So we have 
you know the the whole layout and the, the way that our where we perform the rules because of like hazards etc on that hole so I, there's not really or i can't think of another sport that has a playing area that changes to the extent that we do in golf and then obviously the environment is the environment we've all played in the wind and the rain you know your out, altitude and all of these other things so he he feels that it's a combination of all three of those things that are going to actually impact on how we perform what what i've looked at so i've taken the task so i i have i simply have three things i've looked at i get my people that were a part of my research first things first they just hit their normal drive so i got 20 normal drives i then asked them to see if they could hit it further so i i just said you need to outperform what you've just done didn't put any emphasis on accuracy i just said you need to hit the ball further and then the last one was actually just looking can you go straighter so i gave them an example of a hole that had hazards and out of bounds and a really tight fairway and you just have to hit the fairway and it's kind of looking to see if i saw changes in the in, in what was being achieved because although what i've asked them to do is very different it's still just hitting the golf ball from a to b so it was trying to see actually did did anything change within their performance, both through where the ball finished and actually in the, the body movements that I saw. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I guess the, the study, have you done, have you, are you publishing that yet or um, not quite was, yet? I, I haven't published anything off of it yet. Yep. Um, I've actually today I've just had an email through. So for the, uh, the, the thing that's happening in, uh, in Canada, yep. You know, the the Congress, that that one I've I've had a paper um, accepted today. So nice, something that's along the lines of what was actually within my study. And now that I've got the MPhil finished, um, publications will happen probably over the summer. Cool. So I guess let let's walk through like step by step, kind of the the study of what you did before we get to kind of the results. Like walk me through what was it like for someone? Did they they come into uh, an indoor studio, an outdoor studio? What did they hit on, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of thing? Could you just kind of paint that picture of what it yeah, looked like? So, so just to start with, nobody's really looked at the things I was looking at. So I didn't really have a clear understanding of what I was expecting to see. So. The first study that I did was a very simple one. I just used the TrackMan. Uh, didn't didn't look at the the club data. Didn't look at how the performer was moving. It was just purely on the ball. So I had them do the the three uh, tasks that I, I was asking them to do. So we did that completely outside just to really get an understanding of am I seeing a difference and is this something worth studying. Because if I if I'd had them hit sixty balls and I couldn't find anything between one or the other, you know, this probably wouldn't have been a project to uh, to explore. So that was the first thing I did. From from there, I then did a single subject design. So I actually used a thing called um, direct linear transformation. So like, if you're a golf pro listening and you you've got like a K vest or a my swing, and you can actually create that data using cameras. You know, you manually do what the K-Vest does. It's, um, I wouldn't recommend it. You know, your K-Vest takes about 10 seconds to output what you want to know. When you do it manually, it takes, um, let's just say, longer than that. But uh, I, I did that so I could remain outside. So I, I, I did a study, just a single subject. So one person, um, he was a person that showed big differences in the in the first study so the the outdoor study and then from there i then went back inside so it's always nice to collect data outside because like the ecological validity it's um we want to be testing people in the environment in which they actually perform but from the first and the second one i still had lots of unanswered questions so we went back in the lab that allowed me to use force plates and a vicom system so I think Vicon is like Enzo, which uh, which I think Ping use. Mm -hmm. So very similar optical um, automated system. 
So I, I did the last study and like I would say my more detailed study indoors in the lab using Vicon force plates um, at GC2 in there for the uh, for the ball data. And yeah, that, that those were the three main studies. So I, I did start outside, but um, I ended up in indoors. What were the three um, the three tasks that you're asking people to do? So, so the the three tasks. So the first one was more of a control. So it was just their standard drive. So just would would give them example of a golf hole where they would always hit driver. There's no reason not to hit driver. The uh, the second one, the uh, my uh, my disc my distance uh, task constraint. I was looking at outperforming what they what they did originally. So it didn't give them any instruction of how to do it. And, and that was key to, to this um, process because I, I didn't want my views or my expectations to actually show up in the data. So they, none of the, at no point were people told, well, to hit it further, you could do this. It was simply, I need you to hit it further. And then the third one is the, um, the accuracy task constraint. So that was them trying to hit it as straight as they possibly could. Told them that distance wasn't, wasn't an issue now and I was only testing how straight they were going. You know, that wasn't entirely true because I, I, I took distance and accuracy from uh, all, all of the task constraints that I looked at. But it, it, was, it was very much my standard drive, distance, and accuracy. Those were like kind of what the three were called. So what's our, what's our takeaway on, on the ball data from those tasks? So it was it was interesting. I was expecting, and I'll tell you what I was expecting first, or a few scenarios is when we try and hit the ball further, we think that we might lose control. We might tighten up. You know, sequencing in the golf swing is really important. So I thought what we might see is the distance drive would cause big problems, and, and it didn't. It really didn't. Um, the first study. I had 17 participants, uh, 16 of the 17 increased their club speed or ball speed, I should say, sorry, ball speed. So it, it was quite clear that when they, when elite performers try to hit the ball further, they are able to increase ball speed. I didn't really find any evidence to suggest ac- when they tried to play for accuracy that we were seeing a benefit. At a group level, what was happening was the actual carry mean was reducing. So I wasn't wasn't finding any significance in the dispersion, but they were hitting it shorter. When when I delved in a little bit more, so what, what I've done in my research is I've tried not to just go off of the group means, because like if you've ever coached or you've ever watched golfers, we, we tend to do things very different. So I, I didn't want to just take the average because I would probably lose what the actual findings were. So when I when I broke things down, although a lot of the golfers or like I say, 16 of the 17 were able to increase their ball speed, they weren't all actually getting significance within their carry distance or their total distance. So although the distance drive was giving the ability to have a an advantageous kind of effect on their driving it wasn't happening for everybody another thing that i was seeing and this is more like so when we're looking at like task constraints it's looking at not just are they doing the movement quicker or slower it's like has the movement itself actually changed and what we were seeing is the distance drive so when they were trying to hit it further they were tending to hit it higher launching higher and when they were trying to hit it straighter, at a group level, I didn't get any significance in actually the accuracy drive going lower, like launching lower. But a lot of the actual participants did. And what it meant was although we were seeing differences in ball speed, like I had a, I had a few participants able to carry the ball further, like significantly further, and then the ball wouldn't roll as far. So they would then lose the significance. And we were finding with the... The accuracy drive especially, they, they were losing a lot of distance within the carry, but then it was a lower flight. So it was actually chasing down and actually then making up for that in the roll. 
I use TrackMan. So when you're applying this to the golf course, and this is something that wasn't found in the results because the TrackMan data just assumes role is, it just works it off of the, um, a few figures from the ball flight, is if the accuracy drive isn't gaining any straightness, it's almost essential that it has to be if they're going shorter because if they're landing it shorter in the rough, obviously they're not going to make up the roll. Whereas if they were ca catching the fairway, that, that roll might be seen. So, yeah, the, f the first one, distance drive can be beneficial. Didn't really find any evidence that the accuracy one could be. You know, of the 17, one, per one person in the accuracy actually was significantly better than their standard. And it was simply because their standard drive was very, very poor. So of the 17, they performed very poor. They had a poor 20 drives. And that was actually what allowed that to happen. So, yeah. What, yeah, what kind of golfers, what level, I guess, of handicaps so, did, so did I, you I test? Was, so I, was, I was using elite. So I, I defined elite as if they were an amateur, they needed to be category one. So that's five or below. Um, I had a, I had a lot of PGA pros and I had a few tour pros or guys playing on mini tours. Gotcha, gotcha. So your data set was I'm guessing most of them had a swing speed over like 105. Then yes, correct. Okay, gotcha. Correct. Interesting. And 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 that's a, that's a really good point as well because everything I'm saying today is on a, an elite person. I, I haven't I haven't done this testing with kind of mid to high handicap golfers and i would assume so like the, like i said with the sequencing if you've got a higher handicap trying to hit it harder they might their movement might break down so the, it's something i want to do in the future and i would not be surprised if the results were very different for a population of mid to high handicaps than the elite guys that i've used in my current work so when we, when we talk about the control shots, right, that the people hit, um, I guess like what was the average dispersion? Or I don't know if you have these numbers or know them offhand, but uh, curious, like what's the dispersion from left to right and like long to short amongst the group as a whole? Do you have any idea around that? Yeah, give me a second and I could. Does, does could that question make sense? Yeah, no, that that question does make sense. And let me um, try and pull some some info up for you. Yes. So it's great about having the data, right? As you can. It is, yeah. Figure anything out. Let's find it. Do you have and any I like graphics or anything that I could put in the post along with this? Of of like the TrackMan shots of everyone's hits or anything. Um, I can dig. I can probably dig stuff up. So we're we're looking. So like within my masters, so I've only I've only reported the like the mean of the group. Yep. And I was finding they were carrying it 221 meters, standard deviation of about 10. And then we were finding that the total was going up to about 240 meters with, a, again, a standard deviation of like 10. And that, that, that's in the standard drive. We were finding the distance one, the carry went up to 228. Accuracy went down to 214. The standard deviation stays pretty similar for all three uh, task constraints. I I had um of the of the 17 people in in the collection, I would say I, I one of the mini tour players especially, you know, he he was he he would be above tour average. I had a couple of amateurs in there that were a little older and I would say that their distances were a little further down. Gotcha. W what about the left to right? How did that change from the control to the to the long and the control to the accuracy? Yeah. So what what's interesting with lateral dispersion? So we're looking at 
factual dispersion of 15 in the standard, 16 in the distance, 13 in the accuracy. But the actual standard deviations are quite high, and lateral dispersion is it's quite a volatile um, measurement. Because if, if, if you just think about, like, if you went to the range now and hit 15 shots, you know, you'll hit a couple straight. You might hit a couple wide. So I, I would say, and something that I've reported in here, and, and what I would like to do in the future is, like, Mark Brody stuff, looking at um, strokes gained, is actually trying to give you a value for each one. I think it's a, it's a, it's a stronger measurement. But it, it was actually quite hard to do because like strokes gained, it, it kind of is calculated off of previous and shots, you know, or what shot you're about to have. So to try and actually put strokes gained into this, experimental biased is going to be a bit of a problem because obviously I could change things to make the maybe one constraint look better than the other, depending on how I altered the holes. I've actually spoken to Mark about this and we're kind of trying to see if there's a solution to look at it. So actual dispersion, we're, we're seeing that the means are very similar, but the standard deviations are actually quite big for, for that reason. Gotcha. So it's hard to make conclusions then. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. So by, by not being able to make a conclusion, do we assume they're similar then? Or even that's yeah. a reach? Yeah, so I, I assume they were similar. And, you know, I, I was finding it as well with like, so I try to use angle offline. So when, when you use dispersion and let, let's say I, I chipped the ball out at 50 yards, a 50 yard like chip pitch, and then I hit driver with that same margin of error. Obviously, the driver is going to end up far more offline just because it's traveled further. So I, I try to use angle off angle offline as well so that was a that was a way of trying to see if the actual person's accuracy was changing like more on how they were performing rather than where the ball was finishing and when when i looked at uh, participants individually i had a couple that actually showed that their dispersion was significantly different to maybe another task constraint but then when you looked at it as angle offline that significance disappeared so like i say some some when they tried to go for accuracy they gave up a lot of distance so it was that giving up the distance which made them hit it a little bit straighter but then when you looked at the angle offline that disappeared so they haven't hit the ball straighter it's just that it's gone shorter does that make sense totally 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 so then so then that really goes into Mark Brody's stuff is if they've given up so much distance to get the accuracy, are they actually hurting themselves from a scoring potential on the course? So when people are, are making the ball go shorter and longer, right, based on what you ask them to do, what factors are changing to to make them to get them to that different things is it just ball speed is changing or what what are the factors that have the biggest changes yeah ball, i would say ball speed was so again th this first study that we're talking about you know the the ball speed was changing like if we look at and with, with ball speed the distance was so i i've used um meters per second because that's what we use um in scientific work so obviously that's not as relatable to to coaching but like i've got 70 meters per second for the standard 72 meters per second for the distance and 69 for the accuracy you know so we're we're, we're seeing it we're seeing a difference in the in the ball speed for sure you know the standard deviation is just one in all in all three so that's that's staying very similar so it's kind of it it's showing that and that again it, and I have to stress this, that that's just a mean, you know, we were seeing differences for different participants. Some participants were able to sort of give you your 20 meters, 25 meters difference um, between the distance and the, and the standard. 
task constraints. Obviously, that that could give them a massive benefit on the course, assuming that their dispersion hasn't changed too much. But we also, when I was looking at all 17, and this is this is where we have to be careful sometimes in scientific research. If everybody hits the ball, let's say a couple meters or a couple yards further, you know, through the whole thing, you'll get a significant result that it goes further, but that that significance might not actually cause a functional change on the course. What do you mean by that? Go into go into more detail around that idea. So 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 let's say my three constraints. Let's say somebody hits it. 200 yards when they try and do their accuracy they hit it 205 yards when they try and do their distance you know that that difference if every, if all 17 people make that change you know you might find that it it creates a significant difference statistically but we need actually in golf we need to if we're trying to apply different tasks we need to do it so it makes and alters it enough to actually show a, a difference in the scoring potential. So what I, what I was finding in the 17, I did have people that would hit the ball in excess of, so like in, in Brody's work, he, he, he says 20 yards equals uh, 0.75 shots, potentially better scoring on the PGA Tour. You know, and, and I, had, I had a few participants that were able to create that gap which which is you know a finding that it's like yeah if you could actually apply that while you're playing that's going to have an, a difference but i also had a few that although they hit it a bit further it wasn't necessarily big enough to actually change it on the course so that's why i use like my example there of 200 yards versus 205 that's maybe not even half a club gotcha Okay. What, um, what do you tell students? So after, you know, going through this piece and learning this, are you, you know, getting people out to, to practice, you know, run through this with a student and if they make a big enough gain when trying to hit it farther, farther, just telling them to do that all the time. We can. And what, so what I've done here, and this is very, so this research that I've done is, isn't finished article it was to ask questions and it was to try and get away from just looking at individual components of the swing and saying this is good this is bad what what i like in like what i've summarized is using this um constraints led approach for so this newell approach i think can have massive differences and what i've done here is is just an individual testing session you know, what, what I would like to do in the future is do a testing protocol, you know, try and get people doing this for six weeks and then see what happens. So the, the take home, like if, when I'm coaching, the take home message I take from this and so many amateurs, especially, are afraid of trying to do things maximally. They think if they do it within themselves, maybe constrain a few things within their swing, you know, try and control the degrees of freedom within their swing, they'll perform better. You know, what, what my research has shown is, well, I'm, I, I don't think that's the case. So. Yeah, that, that's funny you say that. We had on Justin James, who is last year's world long drive champ um, yeah. a, a while back. And, and, you know, his biggest thing was, you know, he just grew up hitting the ball really hard because his dad was a long drive competitor and he was trying to keep up with him. And so from a very young age, he was always encouraged just to swing really hard and try to hit it really far. Um, and, you know, he, he made a point of like, not many of us go and just try to hit the golf ball as hard as we can, because for some reason we feel like that's wrong. Like, I, I don't know, you know, subconsciously, I, I know that a lot of people have like, you know, slow down your swing, right? Slow it down. You know, you always hear that, like, don't hit it so hard as a kid, especially, right? These oh, things no, that we... Definitely. And what what's interesting and I, I think it comes down a lot to sequencing. So, because when you look at, look at any movement, you know, we'll, we'll use the golf swing, but it, it really does apply to any any sporting movement. When you do it in a sequence, it looks nice to the eye. So you you watch that 
swing, especially when you when like when you go to an event, like even when you watch on TV, but even more so when you actually go to an event, it looks effortless. And people think, well, effortless, that must be slow. You know, it, it must be smooth. And that we use all of these, all of these kind of terms that go alongside effortless. But a tour pro is swinging probably twice as quick as your average amateur could ever possibly do. But because it looks effortless, they try and create that same kind of thing in their swing by slowing down, by kind of taking away a lot of the components that makes the, which makes the tour pro great. You know, I, I've been doing a lot of, I've been doing a lot of, um, a lot of lessons on the K motion at the minute. And I think we can sometimes in, in golf instruction, especially talk about sequencing as in, you just need to get the ordering right. But, the way proximal to distal sequencing works is you want to get that body segment accelerating to really then kick through. And so whatever that segment creates can be pushed through into the next segment. So it's not necessarily, well, we need to get it in the right order. We need to do it in the right order, but we need to do it in a forceful manner. So like just getting the pelvis to bump at the top of the back or get at the top of the backswing, just then bump the pelvis and then feel like everything else is going to work magically doesn't tend to work very well. So it, it, it's, an in, it's an interesting one with golf. And I, I think golf is still fighting a little bit and, and not, not within the profession, not within coaches, but as an overall thing, is it still seen as quite a slow sport? When it's like driving, if you actually compare it to other sports, it's far more like a, a sprint than it's like anything else. You know, so we, we almost need to try and take that mindset, you know, take that to, the, to our practice more so than the course. And what you're saying about Justin James is he, he's spot on. You know, when I go to the range and I'll, I'll do this with, with my students is it's just say, well, I just want you to hit five balls and see if you can hit them as far as you can. Um, I, I was lucky where I used to work, there was a bank, you know, at the end of the range. So it was just like, I just want you to see if you can hit someone to the bank. And what, what you'll find, and uh, there, was a, there was a study done, and this was done years ago, and not, not within golf, but uh, an experimenter, he took, he went into a classroom. So, he, so this is with, um, with school kids. And he, he goes into the classroom and he splits the, the class in half draws a cross on the wall and one side of the class have to just throw for accuracy. So their only job is to try and hit that cross right in the middle every time. The other half were asked to throw the ball as hard as they could at that cross. And they were asked to do this and they were put into like a six-week coaching intervention. By the end of the six weeks, the guys or the kids that were at instructed to throw the ball as hard as they could they learn accuracy you know they, they became accurate where is the accuracy group although they did maintain accuracy and they did improve accuracy no speed was produced so the the kids that were given just the task of throwing it as hard as you could they they were at no disadvantage to the kids that try to go straight and I think and this was, this was something that I used within my masters. It's looking at like speed accuracy trade-off theory. And it doesn't really apply that well to sport. And, a, a, and I think a lot of people try and apply it to, to like golf especially. You know, if I try and do it quicker, there will be more error. And it, it's not always shown like that. You know, if you try and write a letter and you try and do it really quick, there will be typos in there. You know, speed accuracy trade-off, the, the theory you know, is, is legitimate. You know, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen in everything, but the way that sporting movement works and, you know, looking at variability, like functional variability within, within a movement, you know, there's a, yeah, you, you've got to be careful just trying to look for accuracy, just trying to be consistent. I think, I think the word consistent holds back more golfers than it helps. Because they, they try and achieve consistency before they actually allow the movement to develop. So in a, in a quest to create consistency, 
they create a slow controlled movement that they don't actually they almost put a ceiling on how good they'll ever be because they're not prepared to like hit any bad shots so it's uh yeah it it, it it's interesting in golf and, and again I, I think golf more so than other sports because we feel like we can get away with not being quick you know and if as long as we're consistent we can perform well and i and i wouldn't say that's the case all the time what did you find because you had the vicom running right what did you find for what happened with the body between you know these three different groups so i am um, so before i used the vicom um i i did that study where i used the direct linear transformation okay and uh I just use one one kid, so this this study can't be, you know, rolled out to the to the general population. But I, I had a he's a professional golfer. He was playing he was playing on the mini tours, and we we got him on there, and he he showed no, no proximal to distal sequencing whatsoever, which was a which was a shock. You know, and I I think from a coaching standpoint, I think it would would help him, but we we saw absolutely no sequencing at all but when he tried to hit it further he uh he 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 stopped rotating completely and he he basically started pulling on the handle very much so like a long driver does really really pulling excessively on the handle it's a good way to really put speed into the club head but that was a kind of a shock that second study and it it really really showed the point that you've got to be so careful about just grouping everybody and saying everybody is the same thing. Because if, if I put his data into a group, you know, we would have never found these things. You know, his, his X factor value for, for example, was massive. So, you know, he, he would have, he created good club head speed. He had a massive X factor. So, you know, he, it would have contributed to a saying X factor is important. Whereas what we actually saw in his swing and he, he, he wasn't the best of drivers. You know, he was very much like, I knew, I knew the lad really well, and his short game was phenomenal. He, he did struggle with driving a bit. So, you know, improving the sequencing would have, would have helped him. But, yeah, we, was, we were seeing very different movements from different planes. So that, that was kind of the reason why we went in and did the, did the Vicon. When we actually got to the Vicon, it came down to, to variability, and what we were finding is we, we would trace the mean, or I would trace the mean, and then the, the standard deviation would be quite large in different places, and it, it actually made it very difficult to say exactly what was actually changing. And that, that might sound now as a bit of a cop-out, but it kind of shows how hard it is to to compare golf swings against golf swings, especially when you're comparing somebody against their own performance. You know, it, it's far easier to compare like an elite player versus a novice because you, you'd expect to see big changes. What I was finding between the three conditions that there wasn't necessarily that much difference and it was kind of within the variability that I was seeing. And like, you notice I call it functional variability. I think it's that variability itself that actually let the performers make these changes. You know, we're not we're not robots, and having a bit of variability within the system actually allows golfers to adapt, and it actually allows golfers to be able to perform slightly differently. But from a scientific standpoint, it actually makes it quite hard to give you exact why this was and why that was. Yeah. Did you happen to look at kinematic sequence of the the different groups of, of what it was for players or no? Uh, I, yes, I did. So in, in my last study, I had uh, I had ten participants. All all of the participants, bar one, showed um, a, a kinematic sequence that you would expect. Uh, the the one guy that didn't actually showed it within the distance drive and not the other two. But the, interesting but the one the one guy that didn't show proximal distal sequencing hit the ball the furthest of the group of, of course he did he did uh, yeah and, he, and, <laughs> and this guy he and he would 
although he was a PGA professional, he was um, he was transitioning out of playing on the course. He was trying to go for long drive. That's what he was doing. So, yeah, he he, he didn't show the sequencing in two of the three, but he, he did in the distance. Did you see it break down when people attempted to hit it farther no. or shorter? No. 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 And that, that was something that I thought I might find, but no, I didn't. And like I say, the, the, this, uh, the guy that hit it the furthest, when he tried to hit it further, his sequencing actually improved. But what we have to be a little careful of is when you look at sequencing, it's obviously the timing between the peaks. So just because he's improved it slightly doesn't necessarily mean from a functional standpoint it's changed too much. You know, because the with him off the top of my head, I think his pelvis and his thorax were, were very close. So even though the sequencing improved, they were still very close where you do want gapping between the peaks to actually have a better chain. But yeah, I, I saw no breakdown. And, and that was something when I started the project, I thought I would find. I, and I thought if the distance drive didn't work, uh, sequence breakdown would be the reason. But like I said, I, I didn't really find any evidence to say that the distance drive was having a negative effect and certainly didn't find any breakdown in the, uh, in the sequencing. So, uh, you know, I feel like that's a pretty common idea of this idea of like, if you try to hit it farther, your sequence might break down. You're, you're looking at these elite level players. You're not seeing it. Um, do you think you would see that if you did this same study with, with higher handicaps, would you think that at all by chance? Uh, no, I think I think I would. Yeah, that that's that's something that I think from the results I've seen here. If you, it, especially if you went into a into a population of like mid to high handicaps, I I think I think you would. But it it really does depend, and and sometimes when we when we use handicap, a person's handicap can be that figure can be for a number of reasons. And like my my guess, so here we go. If you've got somebody that maybe you're over the top golfer, so some we, let's assume, and we, we're being very general here, but let's say over the top doesn't use the lower body, doesn't have any real tilt axis within within the body. You know that person is is going to be struggling to to control that club head so much. You would imagine the slower they can do it, the easier they'll find it to square. If you've got somebody that gets the club head in behind the hand path, it, it shouldn't have as big an effect. So we've got to assume that my elite population are going to be doing the latter far more than a, a high handicap. But I, I would imagine that that relationship would, would have a big effect on who could handle it and who couldn't. Gotcha. Yep. That makes sense. Um, so we've looked at the study. We kind of talked about who it was with, what happened with the ball and with the body, um, a little bit, how you would coach this. Um, what other parts of the story do we need to hit on here that you find most interesting? Yeah, I, I find it, I, I think it very much does good into how, we can practice going into the future. You know, I I've haven't looked at a coaching intervention, and I, I think that's what needs to be done. You know, and, and I, I, I hope to do that one day. You know, now I've finished this, I will take a few months off to, uh, to reintroduce myself to the world. <laughs> you know, I, I spent all summer indoors writing this and finishing it off. But it, yeah, it, it's looking at variability. Um, so something that I, I find quite interesting is is trying to take what I find in this and compare it to a, a, like a, a handicap population, and then looking at how we teach the higher handicap population because I, I think it's quite it's quite common at the minute, and, and golf instruction almost seems to be turning that it doesn't really matter how your swing looks. 
you know, you've got so many examples on tour of players that maybe have movements that are a little out there, very unorthodox. And then we kind of use that as a license that it doesn't really matter what people's swings look like. If you if you look at how variability works within like especially when you're learning so like when you first start learning the game your variability is very very wide just because you don't don't know what you're doing once you start to get better so like it, you get into that like intermediate player you know like I, I would probably say that's a, a mid mid teen player maybe a, a nine handicap you could uh, where you put that. You know, you could we could argue about all day, but once you become like that intermediate player, you tend to really take control of the variability. You really do reduce it. And then this is something that I think a lot of people don't maybe consider or realize is once you get into like the elite population, the variability tends to increase again. And that's what allows them to play all these different types of shots. So coming coming off of my research here, it's going. You need to do a training intervention. Like this story hasn't been complete. You know, you need to do a training intervention and see how elite golfers are affected. It's like can can you put this into a novice population? So rather than ask trying to get them in loads of different positions, do you just ask them to hit it harder? Do you ask them to hit it softer? You know, you, this comes kind of like putting, you know, if you use putting, if you look at like quiet eye research, you know, where you don't really teach a method, you just teach a what they're going to focus on and just let them kind of learn how to actually do the task. Because you could argue in golf a lot of the time, we we don't really consider what the task is. We We get so wrapped up in how we want people's swings to look at, how we even if you're using all the technology you know trying to sort someone's path out etc we get so wrapped up in that we forget actually what's the task and this this is what i want to come from my research and like from the podcast today is just to try and consider that is is variability a bad thing but at what point do you allow it and at what point do you not because it's so it's so easy to say, well, an intermediate player doesn't have it, and an elite person does. But it's like, well, how do I know when to change things? Because you you can end up just sitting on the fence and saying, well, maybe I'll just leave this player, and he might become really really good just by learning it. And at other times, you go, well, if I just leave them, they're they're really struggling, and they're they're never going to get to the point in which they need to be. So this research here. It, it really is just looking and I, I think there's so much scope about how we how we teach how we teach different populations and are the traditional ways we're doing it good are they bad you know i'm 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 on i'm on neither side at the minute i just think um there are loads of ways to do it and you know it, it's an area in which we can only learn more and i think once we start learning it you know, I think we'll be able to help a, a lot of golfers. You know, so variability on the course. I, I, I think people say that, you know, hitting a, a driver off a, off of a tee box on a golf course is something that you should, you could block practice. I disagree in the sense, cause the wind's always different. The, the visuals are always different. Um, you know, you never see the same thing twice, really you the feels that you have that day. I, I think there's a lot of variability, even though it's a driver off a flat tee box on a tee. Um, and, and anecdotally, when you were talking with people in this study, did, did they say anything of like, oh yeah, I, you know, I always use this accurate shot. Like this is when they're hitting that, did they ever say like, yeah, I, I use this all the time. Or when they're really trying to hit it a long way, did they say, I, I really don't like this. I don't do this at all. Did, did any of that kind of come up? So when I, when I was, when I was collecting outside and this is going to shock you. Is if you've got an elite performer next to a track man, they want to know what they just did every time. So it, it's quite hard implementing it because, like, like I said, if, if you ask them to go straight and they don't go straight, they then don't want to do it again. So I, I found it was actually far, the protocols were far easier indoors because I, like, I wasn't projecting where the ball was going. But you, you get a lot of yeah. A, 
elite players especially, they get very fixated on where the ball is going. Just for, just for obvious reasons. They're very, they're very good and they, they don't like hitting bad shots. Um, in, in the final study, I did have one player and he was trying to hit big cuts off of the tee. That he thought that was his go-to shot. So for the accuracy one, he he tried to play a bit like a. a I was going to say a Bubba Watson style kind of curvature, but like Bubba is kind of hitting a push fade where this this player was really trying to chop down on it as well, you know, and he felt like that squeezed out there and it it found the target. Um. The the study and what, one of the things that I was looking at or that kind of really helped me work out what I wanted to do was I was looking at tennis serving. So what you were saying about driver and being block practice, it's like, yeah, I, I get why people would think that. And it's kind of why I use driving, because I think a lot of people think a drive is just a drive. And we know it doesn't happen on it doesn't happen like that on the course. There are times where we want to open our shoulders. There are times where we just want to hit it straight. But uh, I had this player and he was trying to hit big cuts. And in theory, that should help because like, I was using the tennis serve and the second serve in tennis, the player tends to put massive bits of topspin on it and it actually increases the depth of, the, of, of where they can land because you can clear the net higher and then it dips down. So playing the big cut should should in theory allow a player and it's a good strategy to work uh, that player did not was not successful in that strategy unfortunately so there's only only one player so I, i'm not saying that hitting a cut or having a stop shot is a bad thing but this player and he was quite adamant that the cut shot was the one that would go the straightest he gave up a ton of distance really was tilting the ball so he was seeing a lot of curvature and I couldn't find anything to say that he had improved his dispersion. So it was it was kind of a big no-no for the player that was pretty confident that the, the shot he was trying to play was going to really outperform certainly his, uh, his standard drive in terms of accuracy. Gotcha, gotcha. I, real quick, would you mind just running through the, the studies that you did? Just like the first one, second one, third one? Just yeah. describing them. I guess kind of just real quickly i just yeah. might throw this at the beginning yeah yeah so i had three studies within my uh, my masters within my mfield project uh, the first one was a outdoors track man uh, we weren't looking at what the body was doing we didn't look at the the club data so it was just purely ball uh, three task constraints so the standard one was just their normal drive you know we kind of used it as a control the second one was the distance drive. That was just to outperform what they did within their standard drive in terms of distance. So if they if they hit it 260, they needed to hit it 270. Uh, the third task constraint was the accuracy drive. I was then, again, comparing it against the standard, they needed to improve their dispersion. So those were the three conditions. We um, they were done in blocks of five, so it wasn't so I, they hit sixty shots, but it was it wasn't just twenty, twenty, twenty. It was done in blocks of five to make sure that it wasn't just order effects. But that that was the first study, really, just to get an understanding of are there possible differences. The second study I used direct linear transformation, which is a manual way to use cameras to pretty much get what an automated system or like a K motion or my swing can produce. Just used a single person that showed big differences within the first condition. Really just trying to get an understanding of how he was able to do it. So that was the second one, again, done outside. The last study, we wanted to get some uh, kinetic data to go alongside the kilomatic data. So we went inside, we used Vicon to look at kind of what the body was doing, the movements, the kilomatics. And then we had a Kisler force plate used to kind of see the force and the center of pressure traces. Again, that was three conditions, three task constraints. They were the same as what was used in the other two studies. Perfect. That is awesome. Uh, the, the force place, did you see anything change with like center of pressure, the pressure trace, 
velocity of the center pressure trace anything interesting there or it again it was all just so so random that it was hard to pull uh, anything out it's one one finding that was very strange was at ball contact i was seeing differences so in the standard drive a lot of the performers hardly had any pressure on the left foot which which you'd expect you know we like when the arm is like parallel in the in the dancing that's when we're expecting to see the most force come through so once you get down to ball contact and i think it's myra did a study i might have said that name wrong but he did a study and found that you almost don't want any pressure at ball contact because you should have like lifted and it's the lifting that lets you like get into a delivery position but what, what i found is the both the distance task constraint and the accuracy task constraint was showing more pressure at ball contact which is strange because one was creating more the other was creating less so how how that affects the actual swing you know you could argue that force that impact's not really doing much so that that was just a a finding that was a bit strange um what i use i use the ball in best um, research so they found that some players kind of do what you expect like from traditional coaching whereas you you put your pressure into the right side in the backswing and then you move it to the left side but what they found is there's a lot of golfers that actually although they'd move and load in the backswing and then they push into the left in the beginning of the downswing they then move into the back once again um, so I was seeing if the const- the task constraints that I used, if they altered anything and actually like changed the performer from being a front player to a reverse. Um, I, I didn't find that. Um, they People tended to stay the same. And then the distance drive, although the trace would be very similar, you know, in the pressure, they tended to get more pressure left earlier. Which is could generally be a good thing we could yeah I, you, I i would put that down to a good thing and if i if i saw that a person doing that you would like to think that they would be in a more advantageous position to create club head speed so yeah that that that's a finding that kind of makes sense um and with just looking at like forces that were coming through in the distance drive i was getting some significant readings in in the left foot like how the, how they were creating forces um i was getting it in the right foot as well but i i had more significant findings in the left foot than the right foot and i did have findings like significant differences in like the early downswing and like mid downswing so i i gave you the ball contact one that was something that was a bit strange um all of those other ones in terms of the trace and what i was seeing early downswing mid downswing they all they all kind of make sense in the distance one you know you're creating creating a environment where yes there should be the opportunity to make more club head speed perfect perfect um no it's all we're all making sense here i think we've covered now we've got you know what happened to the ball what happened to the body what happened to the ground i like that um who it was with the study yeah i think we've hit on a lot of what we need here to explain this to um people and and i would i would say like especially within that first study with the with the ball velocity it, it did show although you can increase ball velocity that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to hit the ball further and that statement's obvious if you think about it you know with how spin and launch and all of these things affect distance. But I think we we can sometimes get wrapped up in a little bit, especially with some previous research where we have only used ball velocity as the performance indicator. So ball velocity is very important if you want to hit the ball further, but it's not the be all and end all. And if you, if you just go, yes, I've got more ball velocity, that means I'm going to improve my game. That that's not what I found. And of the 70 people that I did in that first study, 16 had increased ball velocity. 
16 did not hit the ball further. So that that was something that I found within the study is that distance um, task and straight, it gave the potential to hit the ball further. I wasn't necessarily seeing the negatives that you might associate with trying to hit the ball further, trying to hit it harder, you know, trying to overexert yourself. You know, I didn't find the negatives, but I think you do need a training intervention because you need to learn how to actually take that ball velocity and transfer it into more distance, whether that be controlling all of these other factors that you need to do when you're releasing a golf ball. Do you have an example one that we could we could leave with folks of, you know, if they want to go out and test this out, um, any any ideas on what they should do and how to take that to the course? So I, I would um the the thing I I would be doing is actually just try and do my protocol. You don't you don't need twenty. You know, I was I was getting people to hit twenty shots just because it for like from a statistical standpoint, it meant I had more data, so it it made the the strength of the data more but i would go out and like like try to hit five balls normal and then try and hit five balls as hard as you can try and hit five balls just straight and just just see what's happening you know it pick some targets in the driving range and actually try and be honest with yourself and say well, what's happening with with the five when you're hitting it when you're trying to hit it harder you know, maybe try and do that on every session, you know, just try and hit five as far as you can and see how does it feel? Does it feel out of control in week one, but you start to be able to harness it of the five shots you hit? Do you hit one that you think, wow, that's, that's big, you know, and can I, can I, can I learn from that? Cause I, I think coming from, from this research is I'm not sure whether trying to just hit it straight or trying to hit it accurate or hitting for distance, you know, when you're out on the course, do you need to do that? Maybe if you just try and hit it as far as you can on the, on the range, you don't need those other two task constraints. You know, maybe you can adapt and learn when you're on, on your practice, you know, beating loads of balls just for accuracy. You know, I, it slows you down for one because you hit too many balls. You actually, you teach yourself to be slow, so that that's a bad thing. And like I say, you use my work or use use the kids example I gave earlier. You know, just go out there and try and hit big drives on the range and see see what happens. You know, and it it's an individual thing. You know, but I think if you practice it, don't don't moan that you don't hit the ball very far, and then go out and practice and only try and hit it straight. If you feel like you need more distance. Go out on the range and just try and hit it as far as you physically can. And I think you'll be surprised that once you do that for a few weeks, you'll start to gain control. You might find that you need a few alterations with your driver, you know, to get the optimal launches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think if you're that player that needs more distance or feels like more distance will improve their game, go out and practice it. Gotcha. Any cues um or sensation like so you saw that um pressure moving towards the heel a little bit during when people are trying to hit it farther um that's generally a good thing is, is there any cues that you'd recommend if, if someone's going to go out there that they try or any feels or anything so I'm, I'm seeing significant differences with in the left foot more so than the right foot so i would be thinking push hard off of the left foot you know, don't don't worry. It, it, watch the guys on tour. There's so many players where that left foot is twisting and it's moving because of how hard they're pushing through the ground. So that that's a key one. Um, I'm I wouldn't say you need to try and change your swing too much. This this isn't a become a long driver and make your swing really long. You know that that will help distance, but that's not kind of what what we're working on here. So I, I would use the cue of really pushing hard through the left foot. The, the, the kinetics happen before the kilomatics. So whatever you see in your body movement, it tends to have happened or it does happen because of the, the kinetics around it. So you can push through that left leg hard and early. 
you know, don't feel like you need to wait to get halfway down in the downswing and then try and do it. That would be too late. So use it as a trigger. Make a good backswing and then push hard through the left leg. You know, it's going to it's going to put you in some really nice positions. Hopefully it'll give you some tilt to actually improve the launch. You know, and, and you want to feel like you're going to launch the ball high. You know, the ball, the ball speed, if you can increase that and you still launch it low, you know, you might spin it. You get all of these other factors. So I would be feeling push hard through the left and try and launch the ball. And when you're practicing, don't be afraid to do it too much. Learn how to harness the beast that you're creating. <laughs>